So I'm going to talk in some general way tonight about refuges and precepts, but partly because it's fun and partly because I think it's an interesting proposition. I'm going to weave some of my Burning Man experience into that conversation, partly because I think if you can find refuge and keep precepts at Burning Man, you can probably do it anywhere. (laughs) So... So I'd like you to close your eyes again for just a minute and imagine that you're in this very hot, very windy, very dry desert and you've come to this dome that's way out on the edge of this city of 50,000 people and you've come to have a particular experience that my friends call brainwashing. And so you're standing there in a circle and the first thing that happens to you is there's this amazingly wonderful mist that is blown over you, this mist of water. And so you have this sense of coolness and, and literally being washed and it's very refreshing. And then there are bells really amazing bells that begin to sound here and there around you in the dome. And then there are voices. And this is what the voices say. It's not quite how they say it, because one person can't do it. But this is what the voices say. The first thing they say is, without the miracle of the universe, without the miracle of the universe. And then they say, Without the miracle of the universe, there would be no earth. There would be no earth. And then, without the miracle of the earth, without the miracle of the earth, there would be no life. There would be no life. Without the miracle of life, Without the miracle of life, there would be no consciousness. There would be no consciousness. Without the miracle of consciousness, without the miracle of consciousness, there would be no you. There would be no you. You are the clue. You are the clue. And then the bells would fade out and the misting would happen again and then you'd be invited to open your eyes. So this is quite a wonderful experience to have in the sometimes chaotic environment of Burning Man. And I think it's an experience that points right at a really important place in the notion of refuge. Because we keep hoping, don't we, that we're going to find the refuge out there. We're going to go out, and we're going to go to the right place, the right Buddhist center, the right church, the right geographical location, the right therapist, to the right whatever, 
and that place or person or organization is going to provide us with the refuge that we seek. And I'm here to tell you, does it ever really work? No. Because every place has things that are difficult and every organization is just as political as any other organization and pretty soon, you know, mom and dad are fighting again and the kids are unhappy. And it's just that there isn't any solution outside. And what the Buddha taught is that the true refuge that we are seeking is inside. It's in our own awakeness, right? So the first of the refuges in the traditional taking of refuge is the refuge in the Buddha. It's the refuge in awakeness. And it's helpful, it's hugely helpful to have beings like the Buddha who waked up completely and who brought that their understanding about awakeness to us. It's helpful to have teachers and therapists and guides along the way. Of course, it is. And the only real refuge we have is that interior refuge in our own awakeness, knowing that we are awake. And if you remember, that's when the Buddha, when he was asked who he was after he had that enlightenment experience, he said, I am awake. He wasn't a who, he was a process. He was the process, he identified with the process of awakening. So there was at Burning Man, and Burning Man It's like being, how many of you have been? A few, but not many. So it's like being on another planet, kind of. It even looks like, and somebody said to me, this looks like all the pictures I've ever seen of Mars. You know, of this bare, empty desert where quite literally, it's it's actually a lake bed, nothing grows. There are no bugs, there are no plants, there are no snakes, there are no creatures, there's nothing at all. It's really empty. And then this community begins to develop. We'll say some more about that later. And pretty soon, what it reminded me of most, remember the movie Star Wars? Most people have seen Star Wars. Remember the bar scene at the beginning of Star Wars? Right, where everybody's coming in from this dusty planet and they're all in their desert garb and and some of them have things coming out of their heads, or some of them have several heads, or several sets of eyes, or whatever. You know, you never know who's going to walk in the door. And Burning Man is really like that. You have no idea what you are going to meet on the street. They might have clothes on, or they might not. They might be wearing <coughs> costumes. They might not look like a human being at all. They may be painted all different colors. I was greeted my very first moment at Burning Man by a gentleman who said his playa name was Naked Bruce. And I don't need to say anything more because that gives you the picture. But you know, after a while, those of you who've probably been in places like Hot Springs understand this, it's not, it's just another way of dressing or not. It's no big deal. And so what I find in that atmosphere is that it's a very huge challenge for me to rest in awakeness. 
In the Tibetan world, let me back up a little, some years, in the Tibetan world, I was staying um, at the home of a friend, and there were a whole group of Tibetan monks who had been staying there. And I found out that one of the first nights that they were there, they went out and they got a whole stack of videos. And one of the things they really wanted to watch was one of the Terminator ones. (laughs) They really wanted, I thought, monks watching Terminator, what is this? So we asked them, you know, why are you doing this? This doesn't seem very monk-like. And what they said, I have no idea if this is really true, but I think it probably did have some truth to it. They said, well, this is partly how we train for what they understand the bardo experience to be, the experience after death, and where there's all kinds of noises and sounds and things that will take you off the path. And by seeing that kind, particular kind of film and really trying to stay awake right through it. It's a training for the bardo. Well, Burning Man, great training for the bardo. I also actually happen to think the 41st Avenue Mall at Christmas time is another great place to train for the bardo, where, you, where there's so much assaulting you. And, and the, the job of practice is partly, to, can I stay awake? Can I stay not reactive? and try to see what's happening here that's useful. Because, you know, one of the amazing things about that place is it's probably one of the most creative places on the planet. It's very, very interesting in terms of art and creative energy. So that, that all of the training on the cushion and retreats and daily practice, that practice of, of oh, can I just be here, breath, body, you know, and not get caught in desire and aversion and opinions and, and just see what happens when I stay just in that place. It's very, very challenging. But it's challenging at Burning Man and it's challenging in life. That's what the practice is for, is to teach us to be awake in every moment, no matter where you are. No ma- There's no place, there's no moment in which you cannot wake up. There's none. You can't say, you know, this particular moment, too bad, it doesn't count. You know, all moments count. All moments count. And there is that potential to wake up and to be fully present and to sort out what's skillful. And it's an enormously wonderful refuge to have your own awakeness. So then the other two refuges, the second one is refuge in the Dharma. And the word Dharma, you know, the word Buddha, as I think I mentioned, but if I didn't, I'm going to say it again. The word Buddha, the root is, it means awake. So, and then the word Dharma, the word Dharma is about mm, the teachings or about the truth, about the way things are. And so beginning to really understand the Four Noble Truths, that every time we get attached to things being in a certain way, we suffer. The truth of suffering. Very profound. And again, you know, in in an experience like the one I just had, I could get really attached to things being a certain way, and sometimes they weren't. You know, and if I held on, how come it's so hot? How come the wind's blowing so much? How come it's so dusty? I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. I want it to be some other way. Boy, did my suffering amp up, right? It wasn't pleasant all the time, 
But the Buddha tells us that with suffering, you know, that we have the suffering, that's bad enough. But then, it's like you've been hit with an arrow, right? The heat, or your illness, or whatever. But then we pick up a second arrow, and stick it into ourselves, and that second arrow is the, I don't like it, I hate it, I want it to be something else. And that's where the suffering comes in. And so, beginning to understand deeply those teachings about the nature of suffering is also part of the refuge, because that's that place where you can go, oh, I am a little attached, aren't I? You know? And if you don't see where you're attached, your partners and wives and husbands are happy to tell you. you know, <laughs> Russell's very, very good at every now and then saying, mm. you know, attachment causes suffering. <laughs> oh, go away, you know, I don't want to hear it. But it's true, and he's right, and I'm usually attached, and, and it's helpful to, to hear that. So, so that's part of the refuge. The other two characteristics in, in, Buddhist, te- in Buddhist teachings are the teaching about the impermanence of things, and also that there's nothing solid and separate. And, um, and it's an amazing thing, again, to, um, particularly to, at, at, at the at Burning Man, what, one of the things that happens is people create these amazing works of art, and they put them out there on the playa, and they're there for a few days, and then they burn them, like that. Now you see it, now you don't. And I still look at that and think, huh, but that's how it all is. And it would go away sooner or later anyway, because everything is impermanent. This is just speed it up a little. And it's a wonderful teaching in how everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And so that beginning to rest in that teaching, that's resting in the Dharma, and that is also then a refuge. And then, last of all, the third refuge is the refuge in the Sangha. The refuge in the gathered community is one way to see it. The original meaning of the word Sangha was the community of awakened beings, fully awakened beings. So, I don't know so many fully awakened beings, and I love it that there is this tradition that this has happened for many people, many hundreds of people over the last couple of thousands of years. And so that there is that sense of practicing can lead to deep, deep awakening. And when I think of the few people wandering around the planet, I always think of the Dalai Lama when I... Um, think of this, who seem to be very, very awake. I don't know if he's fully awakened or not. It is a great blessing, isn't it, to have people like that with us. And they're very inspiring and and, um, really a refuge in that way. And there's that sense that also this is a Sangha. And lots of people in our community here at Vipassana Santa Cruz, soon to be Insight Santa Cruz, um, see call this the Sangha. I hear people all the time saying, oh, I'm going to the Sangha tonight. I think, oh, that's, that's an interesting way to use that word. It's not the way, it's, it's not a traditional way, but it's, it's really honoring that the gathered community 
really is a place of refuge. And I've had many people say, oh, you know, it feels so good to come in and um, sit down and feel people come around me and know that these are people who are taking refuge, keeping precepts, and, and there's that sense of it's a somewhat protected environment. There were people who came back to have their brains washed day after day after day. <laughs> so my sense was that that was, like many others on the playa at Burning Man, it was a little community, it was a little sangha of people who were doing a particular kind of practice and people found it to be a refuge. They could come and it would be a little quieter and a little more centered and, um, and it was a refuge. So each of us finds our own communities, yoga classes, musical groups, those kinds of things I think can be a refuge as well. I don't think the Sangha is limited just to what happens here. I actually had one amazing experience that I wanted to share when I was talking about Sangha. Somebody had done an art piece um, that consisted of a large teepee that you could go in and you could write prayers and put them on the walls. But then outside the teepee, they had created these life-sized plaster figures of Native American peoples sitting in circles. And they were holding hands like this. Except that each circle had one or two empty places with a sheepskin down on the ground. And so if you wanted to, you could enter the art piece and kneel down and take hands of the Indian people on either side of you, the men and the women, and just be there with them. And there were some people who did it, I could see they were laughing, but there there were many of us who, as I watched people come, who were very touched by it. And when I knelt there, I wept, because I felt like, oh, I'm part of this community of Native peoples who loved this earth and who found it to be a wonderful and challenging and beautiful place. And, and really some sense of sorrow for what we've done and some sense of wanting to apologize to them. I really felt connected in a way that I don't normally do. And it was really a, uh, an experience of Sangha. So, that's the refuges. Refuge Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, awakeness, teachings, community. But then there are these precepts, the five training precepts. Not harming, not taking that which is not yours, not harming anyone with your sexuality, not harming anyone with your speech, and this includes yourself, of course, and not intoxicating body or mind. And I can almost hear the vibe in the room. Well, I wonder how she's going to deal with this and Burning Man. You know, everybody, <laughs> lots of people have opinions about what goes on at Burning Man. You know, lots of things go on in Santa Cruz too, I might point out. <laughs> so I don't know that it's so very different. I mostly want to talk about us and how we keep precepts and how we work with them. Precepts are (laughs) 
they are what you have when you don't have anything else in a very real way. And lots of times, I think I mentioned this a week or two ago, you know, lots of times people say, oh, my practice is, it's terrible right now. You know, I'm not sitting, and this or that is happening, and life is being so difficult. And always the question then is, well, how are you doing with the precepts? And often people will sort of go, huh? And they'll think, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not hurting anyone. You know, I'm being pretty good there, and haven't been stealing, and I'm being pretty well-behaved sexually, and my speech, you know, speech is always the tricky one for most of us in everyday life. You know, it's, it's dicey sometimes, but it's okay. It's not really any worse than it ever has been, and, and I'm, not, I'm not doing a lot of things to intoxicate body or mind. Oh, and so usually then the sense is, well, you're okay. You know, you're really okay. Because that's, this is what creates a foundation for practice, this place of precepts. It's not about believing, it's not about having certain experiences on the cushion, it's, it's only about, as the Dalai Lama likes to say, be kind. Be kind. It's my favorite teaching of his. My simple religion is kindness, he says. And that's really what the precepts are about. Be kind to each other. Don't hurt each other. Don't take each other's stuff. Don't hurt anyone sexually. Don't hurt anyone with your speech. And don't hurt your body and mind by putting stuff into it that really trashes it. That's all. Simple, huh? So be kind. And it's, it's, it's a training that you can take on. Now these precepts are not intended to be hmm, the kind of thing where you say, I will never, because you know what happens when you do that. I will never say anything unskillful again. And I take a vow. And what happens? You know, you go home and, and your best beloved comes in late and they're cranky and, and they didn't stop at the grocery store like they said they would. And is your speech perfect? Probably not. So there goes your vow. But they're really much more like hazard tape. They're like they're the warning, the warning tape for the places that are going to be difficult. So, being very, very respectful of all forms of life, not taking things that aren't yours, you know. And and that's not just stealing. You know, I often think of the not taking in terms of environmental questions and the way that we have taken and taken and taken from this planet and as though somehow it was inexhaustible and it's not and so now what and can we can we make some kind of reparation can we stop can we cure it I don't know it's going to be an interesting question but we certainly have taken many many things you know entire species and life forms have disappeared because of us so we took them and we hurt them We all know there's probably nobody in this room who has not misbehaved sexually. And if you haven't, I would really like to meet you. Because it just doesn't happen in the adult world. We all have had those kinds of experiences. We know how harmful it can be. And we know that it's a dangerous area. This is not about don't do it. It's about don't hurt. You know? And the same thing is true with speech. You know, you have to talk, we have to speak. 
Now, noble silence is on retreat is great. It certainly helps, and it informs wise speech. Now, to learn how to be silent is a very, very helpful tool in working with wise speech. And um, we all speak, and we know how tricky it is. So that place of being very, very careful with speech, and then, of course, very, very careful with drugs and alcohol, or not using them at all. And people interpret that precept both ways, you know, both with some kind of minimal use is fine, and some people say, no, nothing at all. So I'm not going to tell you which to choose. You have to choose for yourself. But these precepts then become a way of not only protecting the beings around you, but also protecting yourself. And certainly, again, in this last week, in this wild and crazy environment, having my own sense of my own precepts also felt like, this is how I take care of me. You know, I know that I can be safe here because I have that sense of precepts to protect me in this. Not that, not that a nearly 70-year-old woman is in much danger at Burning Man, I'll tell you that right now. You know, much harder if you're a lot younger and a lot more gorgeous. But nonetheless, <laughs> it felt as though it was a protection. And I think for the younger people there who were keeping precepts, that was also true. I think I'm going to stop there. And see if you have questions or comments. I don't want Burning Man questions. I'm happy to visit afterwards about that. But um, I am interested in questions and comments about refuges and precepts. You're welcome to include Burning Man in your question if you can figure out a way to do it, just as I did. But um, let's, let's see where we go together for a few minutes. And then we'll do the refuges and precepts to end. Questions or comments or wonderings? You're all clear about all this? <laughs> no. Please. A question. Please. I'm not sure if it's related, but it's about kindness. Uh-huh. So if we're, we're being kind, and if we want to be kind to someone who has hurt us, mm-hmm. is that against ourselves? Ah, or good question. What? How do we mm-hmm. manage that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I teach about forgiveness, which is a kind of what you're talking about, kindness towards someone who's hurt us, one of the things I often say is, you may not ever be able to let someone in your living room again. Right? You have to protect yourself. There are people who have been very abusive, very dangerous in the lives of some of us. But you do not have to keep them out of your heart. So, now, exactly how that manifests, I don't know. You know, whether contact is possible or not, I don't know. But you could consider this. By not even allowing them access to you, there may be a way that you are protecting them as well as yourself. So that is an act of kindness. So there are ways to be kind that are are about very, very clear boundaries. So that's kind of how you navigate that one a little bit. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah? Good. Great question. Thank you. See, a lot of, a lot of this is that kind of thing. Like, okay, it's, it's not as though it's all cut and dry, but how do I do this? How do I make it work for me? Please. 
me that it's much easier to see in hindsight when I've had bad speech or bad uh-huh. actions of some sort and much more difficult in the heat of the moment to realize that. Right. Are there any guidelines there? Uh, lots, yes. <laughs> I, there are there are entire practices of wise speech. I teach a practice called counsel with my husband for couples about working with speech in order to, because the couple's relationship is certainly one where that is um, often tricky. And so there are ways to slow speech down. And and I actually remember years and years ago, in this, in the, when we met over in the Zendo on Thursday nights, so this was like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and somebody said, when I'm angry, I practice speaking slowly in order to do just that, to not suddenly, because we all, you know, we all know this, that place where the mouth is open and the words are out and, ah, uh, you know, what have I done? So, so to slow down, and I've had many conversations now, I know some of you have heard me say this, where someone will sort of start, you know, let me tell you about, and then they'll go, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure that what I'm about to say is wise speech. I love it when this happens. And then they kind of think for a minute, you know, we sit there and I wait, and then usually much to my chagrin, they say, no, I don't think I can say that. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it's like, oh, darn. What was that story? But, I, you know, it's a wonderful thing to be with people who are thinking carefully about that. And when the mouth opens and the words come out, this is the place where intention is really important. If you're, in, if you're committed to wise speech and you realize you've blown it, what do you do? You go and you make amends. And that you know, becomes much easier because that's, your intention was not to say that thing. So it feels good, certainly feels good to me, and I think it feels good to other people as well. Does that help? Yeah. Maybe one more. Yeah, Mark, please. I'm just kind of thinking about wise internal speech. Wise internal speech. Whoa, yes. <laughs> and, well, the things that come to mind is, you know, I, I was in a meeting today where I mainly, you know, kept it closed, but, you know, I was still kind of, you know, it was a phone conference, so I was doing that a lot, which is, <laughs> you know, not so wise in some ways. Uh, but I had a little debriefing with my manager afterwards where I got to talk about that and I was thinking that you know sort of complaining about the behavior of this particular person in one sense is not wise but I felt like there was some value in for one thing me to see well that's not wise but also to hear somebody else say yeah what they were doing was not so wise either Mm -hmm. and so there's like a reality check mm-hmm. that's, that mm-hmm. seems useful at some point, you know, especially if you can do it outside the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And it's an interesting place whether during, whether the kind of obsessive during the conversation was so useful because that's where you might have been feeding it. 
And I will tell you a little trick that somebody told me once, which was she would sit in meetings and write out meta phrases <laughs> while she was really annoyed at what was so she wrote. May they be happy, may they be peaceful, may they be safe, may they be well. And looked like she was taking notes, right? <laughs> writing thing, writing this down and and it kept her a little more centered. And it's not that the annoyance didn't arise, but she was trying to work with it in a skillful way. That's always the question. You can't keep it from arising. It's conditioned. But what you do with it is really important. Okay, I think we're going to stop there. So I'm going to pass out um, some sheets. Somebody who probably has the ability to stand up, which I don't think I do at the moment, um, could just sort of pan some around. That would be great. Um, so these have the refuges in Pali and the precepts in English. You are welcome to take them home. And since we're going to be working with this for three weeks, I would really invite you to take them home unless you already know these refuges and precepts. Do we need any more? Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's some more. Um, Because beginning to use these on a daily basis can be very helpful. So we're going to chant the refuges in Pali because it's a very traditional thing to do and it's pretty obvious what they mean. So this first line is a salutation to the Buddha, homage to the blessed one, the perfected one, the fully enlightened one. When I chant it, we'll do it call and response so you don't have to worry about pronouncing the Pali or anything like that. And then the three refuges, Buddham Sarnang Gachami means I go for refuge to the Buddha and Dhammam Sarnang Gachami means I go for refuge to the Dharma. And Sangang Sarnang Gachami means I go for refuge to the um, Sangha. The AM sound in Pali, you may notice that I did it, has a kind of an mm sound instead of a mm sound, but it doesn't really make any difference. Chant it any way you want. So we'll do that and then we'll say the precepts. But before we begin, I'd like you to look at the precepts about not harming, not taking that which is not given not harming with your sexuality or speech or not intoxicating with drugs and alcohol and choose one to focus on for the next week. Whatever seems to be yours right now. If there's anyone that you know you can't keep, just let go of it and work on the other four. But pick one that is one that you'd like to be able to keep and you'd like to give some attention to. So everybody got that? clear in their head. You don't have to tell anyone it's your own inner intention, but just to create a little intention about it for the next week. Okay. These are usually done with the hands in this Anjali position, but if you're holding a sheet of paper, that's a little tricky. So you're welcome to do this or not. I do it because I like it, Um, but it's not a requirement. So first call and response for the Pali part, and then the English, I'll say this again, we'll read together when we get there. Namo tasa 
to not intoxicating body or mind and I've forgotten it. It wasn't on these sheets. Oh well. Let me make a few announcements and then we'll just have a little bit of loving kindness to end with. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.